Have you ever checked into a hotel and walked into your room and instantly you knew with every fiber of your being that someone absolutely died in there at some point? Like, there's not a dead body sprawled across the polyester duvet, but the stench of despair, the sticky carpet, and the streaks of dried something on the bathroom walls gives a pretty good indication. That happened to me once at a Motel 6 in Vacaville, California. Vaca, in case you don't know, means cow in Spanish. The sign at the border of Vacaville reads, Welcome to Vacaville. We suggest you keep driving. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained. I'm your host, Daisy Egan. Every week, I bring you stories of the weird, unusual, and inexplicable. This week... Pack your overnight bag and get ready to check into a room you may never escape from. Before we dive in, a quick note. This episode was written and recorded months before the Netflix documentary about the Cecil Hotel came out. So some of the questions I pose have been answered, but we chose to keep the episode as is. In general, most hotels, except for the extraordinarily fancy ones, seem to be repositories for loneliness, desperation, and bodily fluids, some more than others. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. Hotels.com. Whether you need a prostitution sting, a meth lab, or just a quiet place to kill someone, you can find it at Hotels.com. You've probably heard of the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Ryan Murphy did a season of American Horror Story based on it. I haven't seen it. I'm sure it's very Ryan Murphy-y. To which I say, keep Sarah Paulson, forget the rest. The most famous story from the Cecil is about Elisa Lamb. And we'll get to her, but Lamb's mysterious death was only the most recent in a century-long string of awfulness that took place at the Cecil. From suicides to gruesome murders to serial killers lurking the halls, the Cecil Hotel, as you'll soon find out, is either cursed or just a magnet for the most down-and-out people unlucky enough to need a hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Built in 1924 for a million dollars, 15 million in today money, by hotelier William Banks Hanner, the Cecil Hotel boasted 700 rooms, a marble lobby, stained glass, and a grand staircase. As fancy as it was, the Cecil had shared bathrooms, which will become an important nugget of information later. Ensuite bathrooms weren't common in hotels and boarding houses until a little later. The hotel opened in 1927 and was a big success almost instantly, hosting visitors from out of town as well as local Angelinos. The Cecil may well have been on its way to being a destination for international business and social elites, as Hanner had intended. But in 1929, the Great Depression hit. That's some really shitty luck. That's like someone opening a new high-end restaurant in January 2020. Like, how could you possibly see what was barreling toward you? You might be thinking, Daisy, what the F is strange or unexplained about a fancy hotel that goes bust in the Great Depression? To which I say, please stop yelling at me. I'm getting to it. 
Even before the stock market crash in the fall of 1929, things started looking shaky for the Cecil. In April of that year, 33-year-old Dorothy Robertson tried overdosing on prescription drugs in her room and was taken to the hospital after wandering around the hotel for three days. To me, it's not necessarily strange that someone would choose a hotel as the ideal place to kill themselves. That seems like a relatively straightforward choice. What's odd to me about this is that no one seemed to notice or wonder why there was a delirious woman wandering the halls or had the idea that she might need medical attention for three days. How does something like that go unnoticed? The Great Depression changed the Cecil's neighborhood dramatically. Downtown L.A., once a hotspot for tourists and nightlife, became a hub for newly homeless. Thousands of people flocked downtown with nowhere to live, and the area around the Cecil Hotel became Skid Row. No longer a West Coast Gatsby-esque destination, the hotel became known as a hangout for drug addicts, runaways, and as a post on allthatsinteresting.com put it, quote, criminals. Far from its first days, as the pall of the Great Depression settled over the country, the Cecil became home to a growing number of suicides and unfortunate deaths. The first successful suicide on record at the Cecil was in 1931. 46-year-old W.K. Norton was found dead in his room after having taken poison pills. He was found only a few hours after he died by the maid. Police found more poison capsules in his vest pocket. Norton had checked into the hotel as James Willis from Chicago. But police were able to correctly identify him from the numerous checks he had with him made out to a Mrs. M.C. Norton in Manhattan Beach, California, just about a half an hour south of L.A. In 1932, 25-year-old Benjamin Dodich was found in his hotel room, having shot himself to death. Benjamin left no note. Two years after that, a former sergeant in the Army Medical Corps, 53-year-old Louis D. Borden, slashed his own throat in his room at the hotel. He cited ill health as the reason in his suicide note. In 1937, another military veteran jumped to his death from the top of the hotel, landing on a skylight below. There is maddeningly little information about these people other than how they died. Apparently, the appetite for true crime wasn't quite so hearty a hundred years ago. There were so many suicides at the Cecil that by the 1940s, the hotel had earned the nickname The Suicide. Ugh. And it wasn't just suicides in the hotel. At some point, the hotel had begun hosting longer-term residents, probably when tourism dried up during the Great Depression. In 1964, one such resident, Goldie Osgood, who was known to feed the pigeons at Pershing Square nearby, was found raped, beaten, and stabbed to death in her room. No one was ever charged for her murder. Another resident tried to kill himself at nearby MacArthur Park. Another was found drowned in the ocean. In 1944, 19-year-old Dorothy Jean Purcell, who was rooming with her boyfriend, a 38-year-old shoe salesman, woke up in the middle of the night with stomach pains. She went to the shared bathroom, as in shared with the whole floor, gave birth to a baby she had no idea she'd been pregnant with, and, thinking the baby was dead, threw him out the window. 
Guys, I can't even begin to imagine. But let me try. I'm going to go ahead and assume that sex education wasn't like readily available to teens in the 1940s because in large swaths of this country, sex education still isn't available to teens in 2020. I've obviously watched every episode of I Was Pregnant and I Didn't Know It because who hasn't? So I know that some people are able to go through 40 weeks of pregnancy blissfully unaware of the situation happening inside their bodies, which I resent. But anyway... I'm sure whatever circumstances led this 19-year-old girl to be living in a hotel with a 38-year-old shoe salesman were not, like, great. She probably wasn't able to just, like, call home and be like, hey, so I just had a surprise baby and I'm not sure what to do. And maybe her brain was so overwhelmed that thinking she had just given birth to a stillborn baby, the most logical thing to do was throw it out the window. She then went back to her room and slipped back into bed like nothing had happened. Guys, I have given birth. In a hospital with drugs. You don't just waltz away from that shit. It's messy and painful. There isn't a ton more information about this incident. Again, Americans in the 1940s just didn't seem as ravenous for details of crimes like these as we are today. If this had happened in 2020, every inch of Dorothy's history would have been analyzed and picked over. The skeleton of her life laid bare and bleached in the sun. Nancy Grace would have devoted four breathless, red-faced weeks to the evil and empty soul of Dorothy Purcell, and her fate would have already been debated in a congressional session. For example, there's no information about the rest of the birth, Look, I'm not going to give a biology lesson, but labor isn't over when the baby comes out and is either swaddled or thrown out a window. There's other stuff, and like I said, it's messy and painful. I just wonder if throughout the rest of the day, Dorothy kept going to the bathroom and being like, there's more? Also, why not just leave the baby in the communal bathroom and be like, oh no, someone had a baby in the communal bathroom, how awful, as you slowly back away and then run for your life. In 1962, after an argument with her estranged husband, Pauline Otten jumped to her death from her ninth floor room. This, in and of itself, is awful enough, but it gets worse. Pauline landed on 65-year-old George Giannini, who also died. Can you imagine? This guy is just out for a stroll in downtown L.A., and a woman fell on him. Again, there's barely any more information on these people. I feel like at this point, if I owned this hotel, I would have just thrown in the towel. Clearly, the hotel is hexed. Maybe it was built on a sacred burial ground or something. I'm not saying that the spirits of First Nation people were causing these atrocities. It's just more like karma. Then again, I'd wager most hotels in this country were built on someone else's ground. But the Cecil is the only one that seems downright hexed. Oh, also, the Cecil had the incredible distinction of hosting not one, but two serial killers. In 1985, Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker, lived at the Cecil during part of his campaign of rape and murder. 
Now, I'm not an insatiable consumer of the work of serial killers, so I didn't know much about Richard Ramirez before researching this episode. At first, I got really excited because I thought my future husband, Jake Gyllenhaal, had been in a movie about him, which would have given me an excuse to lock myself in my bedroom with my laptop and a bottle of wine. But it turns out that that movie was called The Night Crawler. I was very disappointed to learn this. Ramirez murdered at least 14 people between June 84 and August 85. His method of killing was pretty much always different, but always extremely gruesome and awful. God, what I put myself through for you guys. Apparently, he would dump his bloody clothes outside the hotel and just walk through the lobby into his room almost completely naked. The hotel was in such a state of mayhem and disarray at that point that no one blinked. I want to point out that it's more than likely that this half-naked man would have some blood on him. But there he was, just strolling through the lobby, like the Cecil Hotel had become the setting of a Mad Max movie. Also, not for nothing, but Ramirez was incredibly scary-looking. Like, he could have played Nosferatu, complete with rotting teeth, without any makeup. It's bad enough to be murdered, you know? But to be murdered by the guy who looks like the Crypt Keeper from Tales of the Dark Side? That's just salt on a wound. I imagine it's far more pleasant to be murdered by Jake Gyllenhaal. In the summer of 1991, serial killer Austrian-born Jack Unterweger stayed at the Cecil. Unterweger was convicted in 1975 in Austria of killing a sex worker, strangling her with her bra. Before he was caught, he had beaten, raped, and strangled several sex workers. He served 15 years of a life sentence and managed to convince everyone that he was a changed man. Basically, this guy taught himself how to read and write while in prison. He wrote some shitty poetry, and Austrian intellectuals were like, yeah, he killed a bunch of women, but, like, look at that syntax. One sample of his writing that helped convince people of his reform was, quote, No theme is more poetic than the death of a beautiful woman. There is an age at which a woman must be beautiful in order to be loved. And there is an age in which a woman must be loved in order to be beautiful. End quote. This guy was a serious piece of shit. Like, you know the shit that gets stuck inside the treads of your sneakers that you have to pick out with, like, an old toothbrush? He was that kind of piece of shit. Pretty much the millisecond he got out of prison, he was back at it, strangling sex workers with their own underwear, killing eight more women in Europe in less than a year of his release. Unterweger was extremely neat and efficient in his killings, so there was no hard evidence that could point to him. He was still the number one suspect, though, because usually when women are being murdered with their own bras, the guy who did it is the one who was already caught killing other women with their own bras. It's one of the immutable laws of nature. I'm pretty sure. Despite being a suspect in a string of murders, Unterweger strolled onto an international flight to Los Angeles where he was researching the red light district for an article. Now, I couldn't pinpoint exactly what paper or magazine he was writing for. I'm sure the information is out there somewhere. I just really didn't want to devote too much of my precious brain space to this human shit stain. But if whatever rag he was writing for had stopped to think for one second about sending a convicted murderer of a sex worker out to research sex workers during a string of current murders of sex workers, maybe they would have seen the gaping hole in their plan. 
Who approved that? I'd like to imagine the one woman who worked at that paper, probably a secretary or stenographer, being like, um, excuse me, I think this might be a terrible idea. And the rest of the staff was all, what's that, sweet tits? You want to get me another coffee? While in Los Angeles for five weeks and staying at the Cecil Hotel, Unterweger strangled three more women, which actually seems like an extraordinarily low number for him, especially considering the hotel was a common haunt for sex workers. Maybe he was too busy writing garbage poetry. I just want to pause here and go way off topic because this will probably get cut out anyway to say that at the same time this cock taco was out serially strangling innocent women, Eileen Wernos killed seven men who she claimed had either raped her or attempted to rape her. She was put to death and did not get to travel internationally on a work holiday beforehand. Hold on. I'm going to go stick my head in the toilet. That's better. While Unterweger was gallivanting around Europe and then Los Angeles killing women police finally gathered enough evidence against him to issue a warrant for his arrest. He was caught in Miami, Florida in February of 1992. He was brought to trial and found guilty, even though he cried through his whole trial and insisted he wasn't guilty. Seems to be a pretty common tactic for white dudes. He killed himself in prison pretty much right away. Good riddance, but also another suicide that links back to the Cecil. By 2011, after the ownership of the Cecil had changed hands a couple times, the new owners decided a rebrand was in order. Which, I mean, like six decades overdue? The hotel was renamed Stay on Main Hotel and Hostel, which is actually the most depressing thing I've told you yet this episode. It doesn't seem like they did much except slap a canvas sign on the front of the building. Some semblance of order seems to have been restored to the hotel insofar as tourists started booking rooms there. While the hotel still offered communal bathrooms, it had been a whole 30-plus years since anyone had thrown themselves out a window there, and hardly anyone was wandering through the lobby in their underwear anymore. Yet, even with this new sign out front and the residents fully clothed, darkness continued to plague the hotel. The most recent and well-known story from the Cecil is the gruesome and mysterious death of Elisa Lamb. Chances are you've heard this one. In January of 2013, 21-year-old college student at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Elisa Lamb, planned a tour of the West Coast. She arrived in Los Angeles on January 23rd and checked into the Cecil, which, even though it had been rebranded as the Stay on Main, was still, as we'll find out, the same old Cecil Hotel. She booked a hostel-style room, shared with strangers. However, the people she was sharing the room with complained about her odd behavior, and Elisa was moved to a private room. I have looked and looked for more information on what exactly was bothering the roommates about Elisa's behavior, but there doesn't seem to be any elaboration anywhere about it. After being moved to a private room, she went to the last bookstore near the hotel, which, by the way, is an awesome bookstore. When the apocalypse is over and we can all go to bookstores again, if you ever find yourself in downtown L.A., I highly recommend a trip to the last bookstore. Elisa told the bookstore's owner, Kate Orphan, that she was getting some books and music to bring back to her family and friends. My kind of gal. 
Elisa usually called her parents every day, so when they hadn't heard from her like normal, they naturally got worried. A few days into February, her parents called the LAPD and filed a missing persons report. The police couldn't get a warrant to search every room, but they did a search of the hotel and didn't find her. Going over security footage provided by the hotel, police found footage from an elevator in the Cecil on the day Elisa disappeared. You guys, the footage is creepy as fuck. I'm sure we've all seen it by this point. And if her behavior in the elevator is any indication, it's not too hard to understand why her roommates, who were strangers, would have been a little concerned. Elisa gets on the elevator and presses the button for every floor. The elevator doesn't go anywhere. She hesitantly and quickly peeks her head out of the elevator, looks right and left, and then sort of squeezes into the corner of the elevator like she might be hiding from someone. The door still doesn't close. She then takes a super tentative step off the elevator, almost looks like she jumps in fright, and then takes a couple of weird steps backing up toward the elevator, but stopping, standing off to the side in the hallway just in front of the elevator, almost completely out of the frame of the camera. The doors still have not closed. She stands there for about 20 seconds, then gets back in the elevator and presses all the buttons again several times, then immediately gets back off and stands to the left again. The footage is grainy, but she turns toward the elevator and it almost looks like she's smiling. She starts to sort of wave her arms and gesticulate. She does some weird shit with her hands. At one point, it looks like she's bending one of her fingers back. It looks like she might be interacting with someone to the right of the elevator. And then, after about 30 seconds of this, she just turns and walks off to the left. Now, if by some chance you've been hiding away in a cave for the past eight years and you haven't seen the footage, it's worth a Google, honestly. No other footage of Lisa from anywhere else in the hotel has ever been released. Listen, if you're squeamish, we'll put a timestamp in the show notes and let you know where to skip to so you don't have to listen to the details. On February 19th, after residents of the Cecil started complaining about low water pressure and the water coming out of the faucets black with a weird smell and taste, a maintenance person went to check the water tanks on the roof. He found Elisa's body floating face up in one of the tanks. Look, I really don't want to go into any more details about this. I'm not going to talk about decomposition or whatever. I'm having trouble as it is. Just the thing about the foul-tasting water and the dead woman in the water supply for three weeks is enough to make me vomit all the food I've been stress-eating for the past however long the end of the world has been happening now. Honestly, it feels like a decade. This week alone, I'm pretty sure, began in 2019. Anyway... It remains a true mystery how Elisa got into the water tank. Her autopsy showed no illicit drugs or alcohol in her system, though we all know how unreliable that information is from our vanishing-slash-drowning-men episode. 
And I can tell you from personal experience, it doesn't take a lot of alcohol to get you incoherent when you're on prescription medications, which she was for bipolar disorder. One drink can do it. The autopsy did suggest that she may not have been taking her antipsychotic meds on a regular schedule, though, and it's possible she had a manic episode that was so bad that it caused her to be delusional. The elevator footage certainly suggests something was not right. That said, it would have been very hard to get to the roof on her own. If she had taken the stairs, she would have tripped the alarm when she opened the roof door. Only hotel employees could turn the alarm off. There were three fire escapes she could have taken to get to the roof, but the larger question is, why go to the roof at all? The history of the Cecil itself tells us there are way more efficient ways to kill yourself at the hotel. Sorry. I suppose if she was having hallucinations, she might have been thinking she was following directions or orders of some kind. Again, not to veer too far off topic, but there are some people who insist that Elisa was playing the elevator game, which has been attributed to either Korea or Japan, depending on where you look. It's not worth going into because it's utter nonsense, but basically you press elevator buttons in a specific order, and then some lady gets on the elevator, and you can't look at her, or you'll end up in another dimension or something. Or maybe you end up in another dimension regardless. It's like if Hotels.com sponsored the movie The Ring. Again, I don't buy this at all, but just to note, you're supposed to press the buttons in a particular order, not all at once over and over. And also, who cares? It's not real because science. More recently, guests have claimed that the hotel is haunted, saying they've seen dark figures in their room or have felt their blankets being tugged at. Honestly, judging from some of the pictures on Yelp, I wouldn't be surprised if guests' blankets were being tugged at in the middle of the night by massive cockroaches. There was also a photo taken by a resident of what appears to be a person standing on the outside ledge of a fourth floor window. Some people view this figure as a ghost and say it explains why so many people have fallen or jumped to their deaths at the Cecil. But the guy looks like he's wearing gray pants and a blue button-down collared shirt. Basically, he's in the uniform of every financial guy or dot-commer from the late 90s, early 2000s. So, unless this ghost who is responsible for decades of death is changing his outfit to remain relevant, I would say it's probably a literal person standing on the outside ledge of a window. Don't ask me why. I can't, nor would I want to get inside the mind of a 30-something business school graduate. I was married to one. That was plenty. But if it is a ghost, props for staying on brand for everyone's worst nightmare. One thing you'll learn about me as we take this podcasting journey together is that I don't believe in ghosts. And before you start to worry that Strange and Unexplained is just going to be another true crime podcast disguised as something more spooky, don't. My opinion on ghosts isn't concrete. I may not believe in them, but... A, I am highly suggestible, and B, if it's not a ghost rattling around in your attic, what the hell is it? Like, I'm willing to admit I don't know everything about what happens to our souls after we die. So I'll be telling you plenty of ghost stories, I'll just be doing it with a lot of side-eye. And the thought that there is just nothingness afterward and we're just food for worms is too depressing on a deep existential level. But I refuse to accept that when we die, we hang around Earth trying to keep people away from our old houses or furniture. 
Because honestly, if we are as concerned in death about our crap as we are in life, that is the most depressing thing I've ever heard of. I would really hope that when we die, we gain some kind of higher consciousness that makes everything relatively meaningless. Like, just because that old cuckoo clock was handmade in the 1600s by someone's great-great-great-great-grandmother, please don't tell me that the dead great-great-great-great-grandson is hanging around like, stay away from my clock. And if someone is murdered in a seedy motel, please, for the love of everything, tell me that person isn't doomed to spend eternity hanging around that seedy motel. Like, go live your afterlife, you know? Go visit the Taj Mahal. Have a chat with Maya Angelou or Confucius. About a year after Elisa Lam's death, a development team from New York bought the Cecil for $30 million with a plan to put another $100 million into renovations. The hotel has been closed since sometime in 2017. When last checked, the plan was to reopen as a boutique hotel and apartment building in 2021. Good luck! I suppose we should all be relieved that the Cecil wasn't open in 2020. Given what a shitstorm of a year it was, I can only imagine what kind of horror stories would have poured forth from its windows as people endured month after month of lockdown. Look, there isn't enough renovating they could do that would convince me to stay at the Cecil. I don't care if they rebrand it as a Ritz-Carlton with free room service and massages. I would literally prefer the Motel 6 in Vacaville. At least that hotel is only one floor. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. On January 11, 2013, the body of 17-year-old Kendrick Johnson was found inside a vertical rolled-up mat in the gymnasium of his high school. A preliminary autopsy and investigation ruled that the death was accidental. A second autopsy determined that he died from blunt force trauma. Was Kendrick's death a terrible accident? Or was it murder? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, researched by Haley Gray, and edited by Claire Smith Marish. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod and at Daisy Egan. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 